Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton councillors rejecting a plan to turn parking lots in Stony Creek into affordable housing. Also on the show, terrorism, a new dominant generation, coldest night, and back to the moon. Enjoy the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. A divided Hamilton council. I mean, we've heard that phrase before. But it came about earlier this week, rejecting to use a parking lot in Stony Creek to build affordable housing. So at the General Issues Committee, there was a tie vote 8 to 8, which means a proposal to sell off two municipal parking lots in downtown Stony Creek was rejected. And and the plan was to turn these parking lots into 67 new affordable housing units. Think of at least 67 individuals and probably a whole lot more if you're thinking about families moving into these housing units. They are the only municipal lots in that area and residents there say, listen, they're critical to small businesses and and medical clinics in this uh, part of Stony Creek. Mayor Andrew Horvath, not too happy that this did not move ahead. When it comes to the, you know, the, the final discussion about where our priorities lie, how can our priority not lie with providing housing for people. Matt Francis is the councillor for Ward 5 with the City of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Matt, good morning. How are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How did you vote and what was your reasoning behind it? Well, I'm the ward councillor for downtown Stony Creek and I voted with my residents. I, we need that parking lot downtown Stony Creek and, and I'm, I'm really quite actually disappointed in how this is being framed, that this is affordable housing versus cars. It's not. This is about protecting jobs, protecting small businesses, and protecting people with disabilities that visit the medical center there. And the visitors and the residents and people that are veterans that fought for our country that visit the Royal Canadian Legion downtown Stony Creek. So I'll be standing with my residents on this issue and it's this parking lot is important for to maintain the the vitality of downtown Stony Creek. That makes sense. Optically, though, I mean, it doesn't look good. Council is basically saying that parking is more important than housing. Well, see, that's a narrative that I don't like at all. That's that's totally incorrect. So we need those jobs. If we don't if we don't have those parking lots, we lose those jobs. We lose the, the small businesses that provide those jobs and those jobs help people pay their rent, which is so ironic. So, no, absolutely. That's incorrect. And, and alternatively, I brought another solution forward anyways. I, I, I offered up. Uh, a project at Riverdale uh, that could go forward with that will provide almost as many affordable housing units for families in a neighborhood that can support it even better than downtown Stony Creek. And where does that proposal stand? It got referred to the um, one of our subcommittees, our, our school board subcommittee. So to go through that process there, and and I, I I've been collaborating with the Ward Five trustee. I've got all the confidence in the world that that can go forward, and it, it will be a successful project. And it will provide housing and much-needed affordable housing for folks. The uh, the General Issues Committee's ruling still needs a final decision at City Council, uh, which is going to happen next week. Do you envision anyone changing their vote on this? I mean, if you look at it, I mean, realistically, people are the the councillors that voted uh, to to support my community are thinking the same thing about their own community, and right rightfully so. I mean, if this was their community where you have the, the BIA show up, the, 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 a number of, of residents, the, 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 the Chamber of Commerce that represents dozens and dozens of businesses, local businesses, 
um, and a massive petition. Thousands of people signed this petition. I mean, who wouldn't? I, I, it's surprising that it's this divided. I mean, this is categorized as affordable housing versus cars or parking spots. That's totally incorrect. That's not how this should be framed. I brought an alternative anyway, so I'm happy to move forward. Uh, you know, and I hope the vote stands. I, I'm, I'm confident that it will, actually. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Matt Francis, Councillor Ward 5 in Stony Creek with the City of Hamilton. We're talking about a decision at General Issues Committee earlier this week, which ended in a tie vote of 8-8, eight to eight, which meant the rejection of a proposal to sell off a couple of municipal parking lots in downtown Stony Creek, and they were earmarked for these affordable housing projects. Is there, an, and I get the economic uh, aspect of this, is there a dose of nimbyism here, though, too? I mean, can you take one of these parking lots and change it into affordable housing? Will it have that of a detrimental impact to the community? You know, my, my community t- took quite offense to that when, when people were suggesting that. You know, they, they, they came and delegated. I spoke to, I had, I had a community meeting with 200 people there that said the same thing. They said there's a tower going up right on King Street, eight stories. It's not being opposed. Um, so the, this, and then actually, when you put that up, it's going to bring even more people downtown Stony Creek. That parking lot's going to become even more vital for the success of those small business owner down, small business owners downtown. Um, so no, I, I mean absolutely not. My residents are not NIMBY at all. I mean this is this is that's totally incorrect. This is not about housing versus cars. Like I said, this is about keeping the small businesses afloat and providing good quality jobs for the community. There's not a great public transportation system in Stony Creek. I mean, the HSR, I think, has one bus out there. Is that is that part of this problem, too? <laughs> this is kind of the, the irony of irony, ironies for this. Um, several months ago, uh, council decided to go forward with a new plan that would um, eliminate the 58 bus, which was a, a bus that would go straight from downtown Stony Creek over to Eastgate Square and, and over to grocery stores. They, we canceled that bus as a council. I voted against that. I tried to revive it. There was no will to do that. So now it's it's even harder to get to a grocery store. It's harder to get to Eastgate Square. So this this council actually made transportation in that area more difficult for residents. So, I mean, if the argument was that this is a great location because access to transit, that, that argument is totally out the window now. Well, it has made for a very uh, interesting discussion in this city. Matt, I appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Matt Francis, Councillor Ward 5 in Stony Creek with the City of Hamilton talking about this decision at GIC. And it will again make its way to City Council next week. And I'm sure there's a lot of of chatter in the back rooms at City Hall. People thinking, can we get this thing reversed or are we going with the status quo? That'll be interesting, and uh, you'll get all the details on CHML News coming up next week. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ontario Superior Court Justice ruling the man who killed four members of a Muslim family and injured a fifth in London back in 2021 committed an act of terrorism. We don't know if it's closure or justice. What we, de- what we do know is that the verdict will not bring back what was stolen. It will not mend the fractured pieces of our lives, our identity, and our security. Tabina Burkari, the daughter of Madia Salman, who died in the attack. Joseph Newberger is a criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Joseph, uh, no surprises yesterday? No, this uh, had all the hallmarks of uh, a terrorist act. Uh, the 
offender um, had been radicalized online with various social media and other sources. He identified with a uh, white nationalist movement. He wrote his own manifesto, specifically speaking about actions he wanted to take to further his beliefs, and his actions were directed at an identifiable group. It was clearly a Muslim family, and so he, you know, he checked all the marks for a terrorist act, and I'm I'm quite glad that um, the judge arrived at that conclusion. Was this a precedent-setting decision? Yeah, I mean, in, in the sense that, you know, fortunately in Canada, we don't have many mass casualty events. We don't have many targeted uh, murders or other type of actions um, carried out for these types of ideological and um, racial purposes. So in that sense, it is precedent value. We've never had somebody in a situation like this uh, declared to have acted in a terroristic manner. Um, and I think if, you know, other would-be offenders come forward to commit acts that are based on, you know, ideology, political beliefs, or or religious beliefs, that they too can be subject to uh, being labeled as terrorists and have their sentences increased. Committing an act of terrorism, it did not change the penalty that the accused was given. No. So he has a, a now five life sentences because he was sentenced as well to uh, life on the attempted murder of the uh, young boy who survived. So he'll be in jail a minimum of 25 years. That's where his parole eligibility is. But, you know, the reality is that it's a life sentence and there are so many aggravating factor factors and so many features of this individual that his chances of receiving parole are slim to none. And does so does the act of terrorism designation, does that, that also make it much harder for him to get parole in, in whoever, how, however many years down the road? Absolutely. So at the minimum, he couldn't apply for 25 years. And because of the designation uh, of having committed a terrorist act, that is a particular factor that will impede his ability to obtain uh, parole. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer at Newberger and Partners LLP. And we're talking about the uh, designation from an Ontario Superior Court justice yesterday, uh, ruling that the man who killed the Ufsall family and uh, injured a fifth member of the family in London in 2021 did, in fact, commit an act of terrorism. Is this along the same lines as the dangerous offender designation? It's not. So a dangerous offender is where somebody receives an indeterminate sentence, so they don't have a right of a parole hearing until their first seven years is served. And because of that designation, there has to be um, significant psychiatric and psychological workup done to see if their risk profile has decreased to the point where they are safe to release to the community. He has received a life sentence where there are a number of, as I've said, very serious aggravating features, including hate and terrorism. And so um, it's a different sort of quantitative analysis to see if he could be released, but it's still based on risk with respect to somebody who's convicted of murder and terrorism offenses. Um, so it's a different type of, it's a different designation. This is you know a murder with a life sentence. But again, I, I just can't believe that he will receive parole in his lifetime. The defense did submit that uh, the accused mental state should be considered um, uh, in the sentence, and the judge basically rejected that. Uh, is, is that a common uh, tactic from the defense? 
No, but there are instances where there are people who have um, mental uh, issues um, that that can play a factor. So um, somebody can be suffering from an organic disorder, and if it doesn't render them, you know, incapable of appreciating the nature of their actions, something short of that can still be a factor as to their behavior, and you can treat some mental illnesses. And it, and I want to be respectful because, you know, mental illness is a reality in our community, and mm-hmm. people function perfectly on medication and, and it doesn't impact their daily lives. But if there is... Uh, some mental illness. So, for example, let's talk about delusional disorder where they believe something, but it's not necessarily at the level of not being criminally responsible. That can be taken into account. This really had, you know, very minimal type of um, application in this case. There was some psychiatric evidence called and there was some uh, indication of, of his vulnerability and and certain other factors, but it really was not... Uh, it, it, it didn't play a significant role at all in his offending behavior. His, his offending behavior was driven, frankly, by uh, hatred and an ideological belief. Um, that that was the main driving force. Yeah. Last one for you. I know uh, this individual received a concurrent sentence as opposed to consecutive, and, and that precedent has already been set. Yes, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down a law that was put in place uh, some years ago that said you could have uh, con- uh, consecutive um uh, life sentences, so you could stack them like 75 years or more. Um, that was struck down, so this has to be served concurrently. Um, but life is life, so I just think it's more of a symbolic issue, and it brings into line our sentencing regime with uh, human rights, uh, you know, legislation uh, internationally. Well said, Mr. Newberger. Always appreciative of your time. Thanks for joining us today, and enjoy the weekend. Thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. Take care. That is Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer, Newberger and Partners, LLP. As we reflect on a precedent-setting day in an Ontario courtroom yesterday in which a Superior Court justice ruled that the individual who killed four members of the Oswald family in London back in 2021 and injured a fifth uh, did in fact commit an act of terror. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about generations because, well, we have a we have a new dominant generation in this country. Millennials overtaking baby boomers. Statistics Canada says millennials who were born between 1981 and 1996 surpassed boomers Actually, last year, July 1st, 2023, baby boomers born between 1946 and 65 became the dominant generation in this country in 1958, seven years before the last boomer was even born. And for 65 years, boomers have been the largest generation in this country. Well... Up until last July, Bruce Newbold is a professor in the School of Earth, Environment and Society at McMaster University, also the chair of Clean Air Hamilton. He joins us now on GMH. Bruce, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good. Good morning. Thank you. I'm good. Thanks. Is this a significant demographic milestone? It is. It's it's really sort of a watershed moment. You know, as you were saying in the introduction, baby boomers have been the biggest cohort or group of people in the Canadian population for so long, you know, since the late 1950s. And they've sort of been dethroned now by this newer, younger generation of millennials. So what is the impact? I I would imagine it's far reaching. 
It is. And there's a few different things. So one, um, you know, it's it's just who's in the workforce, who's working. And, and so millennials now are sort of the backbone of the Canadian labor force. They're the ones that are doing the work as, as our baby boomers start to retire. Um, part of it too, you know, what we're seeing here is uh, the the millennial population or cohort has been growing a little bit because of immigration. So from a demographic perspective, we can actually see that the Canadian population has actually got a little bit younger, only by you know a, a fraction of a year, but it is significant because over the past few decades, you know, we've been talking about how the Canadian population is aging and getting older. This is a it's it's not huge, but it is a little bit of a shift in what's happening. Well, and that is important too. the the age part of this equation. And that's, you know, one of the main thrusts behind bringing in more immigrants and more younger immigrants is from a healthcare perspective, it's easier to maintain because the older you get, obviously you need more healthcare needs. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we, we know and we can see it in the statistics all the time that uh, an older population needs more health care. Now, the one thing is, you know, our millennials uh, are going to age too. So at some point, we're going to see this sort of bubble or this big group also age into retirement, age into greater healthcare needs. So, you know, we just have to sort of keep that in mind over the coming years or decades that we are going to have to deal with this group as well. Bruce Newbold is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Bruce is a professor in the School of Earth, Environment, and Society at McMaster University, and we're talking about millennials, that uh, demographic, that generation, now overtaking baby boomers for the first time in this country is the dominant generation. And interesting to note that uh, you mentioned the immigration part, but perhaps even more surprising is that Gen Z, those born between 1997 and 2012, is now the third largest generation in Canada. They've already passed Gen X. Yeah, that's right. And and again, it's 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 the growth of that. So in part, Gen Z, there's a little bit of a what you might call like a baby boom or baby boomette. It wasn't as big as the baby boomers, but there's sort of that rebound in terms of birth. Um, Gen Z is also driven by immigration. So it's not just working age immigrants arriving, but it's working age immigrants with their children or people arrive in Canada and then have children. So they're growing that population as well. It also means that in all likelihood, Gen X will never be the largest generation in Canada. What what happened with Gen X? Well, that was sort of after that baby boom, you had the baby bust and, and our birth rates, our fertility rates just sort of dropped. Um, you know, we, we lost that desire for bigger families and more children. Uh, so it was all, it's always been a smaller cohort it w didn't benefit or didn't see that large immigration in the way that we're seeing immigration impact the millennial uh, cohort. So it's it's just sort of a legacy or that that piece that's left over. Where are we now? Obviously, we're we're post Gen Z. I'm not even sure what generation we're in now. And what is the uh, what is the feeling in terms of procreation and whether this current generation could be more dominant down the road? I think it's going to be a little bit of a stretch. You know, we're, we're sort of crystal ball gazing at this point in time, but our birth rates are at historic lows um, in Canadian society. It's unlikely that we're going to see a rebound in those birth rates. So where Canada is going to get its growth in terms of population is through immigration. And it's, you know, unlikely that, as I say, that we're going to see a bounce in uh, birth rates in the coming years. Very interesting statistics. Bruce, thanks for breaking them down with us. 
Thank you, Rick. Bruce Newbold is a professor in the School of Earth, Environment, and Society at McMaster University. Millennials overtaking baby boomers, again, is the dominant generation. And those millennials, born between 81 and 1996, and they passed boomers last July, July 1st, 2023. Boomers are born between 46 and 65. And Gen X, 1966 to 80, that's my generation, we're never going to be number one. Uh, Generation Z, 1996 to 2012, is now the third largest in Canada. There is another generation, uh, apart from the current one that we are in, but the remaining third uh, of the of the generational uh, members of our of our country are the interwar generation, born between 1928 and 1945. So, after World War One and before World War Two, and this is considered. The greatest generation, born before 1928, that is the greatest generation, who we still have a few of them around. And, you know, nicely so, because they are the greatest generation. So there you go, a little uh, history lesson and um, a new new title holder in Canada in terms of the dominant generation. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The coldest night of the year event. In support of local charities, serving people experiencing hurt, hunger, and homelessness is going to take place tomorrow in Hamilton and other communities. And described online as a winterific family-friendly walk, team-up fundraise walk, and take a moment to look closer because it is cold out there. Alice Plug-Bust is the executive director of Helping Hands Street Mission here in Hamilton and joins us on GMH. Alice, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing really well. All set for tomorrow's uh, big event? Yeah, it feels like the calm before the storm. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about uh, the walk. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. um, In Hamilton, there are four different uh, um, organizations that are hosting the walk, and Helping Hands Street Mission on Barton Street is one of them. We get to walk while we're starting at the Playhouse Cinema, uh, doing a walk down Barton Street, uh, getting to know different service providers in the neighborhood, and... uh, yeah, walking with over 300 people, hopefully raising, uh, we're getting close to our goal of $79,000. Wow, how much have you raised so far? Uh, we're at actually 79% of that, so just over 62000 is what I saw uh, oh. most recently, yeah. this morning, when I woke up and of course checked where we were at. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what does all that money get used for? So at Helping Hands, we um, provide friendship-based support for folks that are dealing with uh, social, financial, and spiritual poverty. Um, and we focus on that friendship piece, developing relationships with folks, helping them uh, the way that friends would for friends. So really walking alongside people and uh, as a friend, helping people access resources. Um, and um, because we're a Christian organization, also uh, walking alongside folks in their uh, spiritual journey, um, helping them to feel welcome into God's family as well. That's tremendous. How did this all start? Uh, helping Hands yeah. started 20 years ago. Um, a woman uh, with lived experience, um, uh, with street involvement, um, was uh, many years before that uh, supported as a, um, by someone who became her friend, um, supported out of uh, a life uh, that was really difficult and street involved. Um, and so later she wanted to, together with her husband, give back. Um, and so she started following the soup truck around with 
a van full of clothes um, because she knew that uh, people living on the streets uh, need that kind of support. But then she she knew deep down that it was much more than clothes that people needed. People needed uh, a friend. People needed to be able to be part of a community. And so uh, very soon after that, she and her husband, uh, with the support of their church and friends, were able to rent a small um, storefront, which is the same storefront that we have now, um, except since then we've also been able to rent the one beside it, uh, and we are now uh, bursting out of the scenes just out of those two spaces, uh, <laughs> where we just, yeah, like we do what friends would do for friends, have a cup of coffee together, um, have a, a free clothing store, just like friends sharing their closets, right, so that people can access clothing resources, bedding, um, tents, sleeping bags, things like that as well, but really focusing on uh, that kind of friendship, community building, um, sitting together, getting to know each other and helping people to to know that they're valued and know that they are important parts of community as well. That's tremendous. You can get all the details online on the website, hhsmhamilton.com. How, how many people do you help on a, on a weekly or maybe even an annually basis? Um, well, we we were working on our impact report for last year and uh, realized recently that we actually have served 12,000 cups of coffee last year. So that means, and we, we talk about that as 12,000 cups of conversation. So that doesn't mean we help 12,000 different people. Mm -hmm. A lot of our folks are coming um, in and out, uh, you know, a couple of times a week for their, for support. Um, but uh yeah, over the course of a week, we see um, 150 different people coming through for whatever kind of, you know, friendship-based support they need. Alice Plugbust is the executive director of Helping Hands Street Mission, one of the many amazing organizations involved with the Coldest Night of the Year event, which happens tomorrow in Hamilton and many other communities uh, around this country. Um, how can people participate if they're listening to this thinking, hey, I want to I want a piece of the action here and and help fundraise as well? Yeah, definitely. They can come or they can go to the Coldest Night of the Year website, uh, which is really easy to search online, uh, cnoy.org, um, then choose the Hamilton Barton location or any of the other Hamilton locations that are closest to them. So there's one on the mountain as well as city center, uh, Waterdown, uh, in addition to ours on Barton Street. Um, so sign up uh, and then uh, come walk. The idea is that folks will do peer-to-peer -peer fundraising um, and so uh, before coming, have a chat with your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, uh, get them to, to give you some money towards the walk. Um, and it's as easy as that. Registration is free. If you raise $150, uh, you get a, a toque to celebrate uh, your, your hard work. Um, it's $75 for youth. But everybody can join in. There's no, no barrier for joining in at all. And um, things like the snacks, the food, things like that uh, are all free for anybody who participates. When does the walk begin tomorrow? It's a bit more complicated for the Barton Street one because we're starting with a, a, um, a documentary viewing at the Playhouse Cinema. So we're doing two waves. Um, first wave uh, opening remarks start at two. I mean, sorry, at four. Uh, second wave starts at 515. Um, uh, but it's, yeah, basically uh, come between 3.30 and 4 o'clock, um, register, join, and walk with us. And then the other walks, I think they're more like uh, registration starts at around 4. Awesome. That is great to hear. Lots of money is going to be raised and staying in this community, helping people in need. Alice, thank you so much for your time this morning. Best of luck this weekend. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That is Alice Plugbust, the executive director of Helping Hands Street Mission online, hhsmhamilton.com. And for more details on the coldest night of the year itself, you can go online to cnoy.org. Tremendous event that's going to help a lot of people in this community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ozempic, you've heard about it. You've heard about it, and I'm sure many of you right now are taking it and maybe taking it to lose weight. It is certainly impacting the fitness industry. There's a recent article out that says gym attendance in the U.S. is down since Ozempic flooded the market. And it's not just because this drug is helping people lose weight quickly. It's also apparently making them sick when they work out. People are throwing up while working out if they're taking Ozempic. So what's going on? Ernie Schremeyer, Schremeyer is a former Hamilton Tiger Cats fullback, certified personal trainer at Ernie Schremeyer Fitness. Ernie, good morning. How are you? Hey, how you doing, Rick? I'm fantastic. Have you noticed any of this uh, Ozempic impact? Um, until you brought it up, <laughs> until <laughs> the question came to me from you yesterday, I hadn't even thought about it. I I have um, I do, I do have a couple of clients who are on Ozempic, and occasionally they have... Um, feelings, you know, unwell, their, their stomach bothers them, but I haven't had anybody throw up like that. And, um, you know, thinking anecdotally, I'm, I'm in the gym a lot in different gyms, several around town. And, um, my, my kids are as well. And I I can tell you the, the gyms are never empty. They're quite often they're packed. (laughs) So I haven't seen any, any difference in terms of gym attendance. Nice. So what I did was I reached out to 21 trainers, um, who I know from, uh, New York, Ontario, Quebec, Alabama, California, out in BC. And it's, you know, sent a big message out to everybody yesterday asking, and not one, zero, not one single trainer replied that they've noticed that. And that's, you know, that's coming from New York all the way to California. Oh, interesting. Um, none of them. In fact, my, my, my close friend, Tony, who's a trainer in uh, Staten Island in, in New York, near where the, the article originated from, he said that the people he's working with who were taking Ozempic, they're really aware of the fact that a lot of weight loss is going to uh, include muscle loss, which will affect metabolism ultimately if they're not working out. So it's actually encouraged them to, to be extra diligent in getting to their sessions. So that, that was his response for it. Very interesting. When it, you mentioned you have some of your clients who are on Ozempic and, and obviously they're, they're trying to lose some weight, get fit. Is there a delicate balance between, you know, being in the gym, losing some of that muscle mass that you talk about, but still being fit? Yeah. If you, you know, if any weight loss that occurs uh, purely from cutting calories, for instance, and that's likely what's happening with Ozempic is because it makes you feel full it keeps the stomach uh, filled with food for longer so it doesn't empty as quickly so you feel fuller for longer so you don't consume as much because you know you're not hungry when, when you lose weight like that if you're not accompanying the you know the weight loss with something to help maintain or actually build muscle you will lose muscle and muscle really equals metabolism so in the long run it, it's really important to to maintain the muscle that you've that while you're losing weight to keep on uh, keep your muscles and not lose it along with it, because then you're losing your metabolism. Right? Mm-hmm. There's so many differing opinions, and I've, I've, I'm sure you've heard them all, on the best way to lose weight. What's your opinion? Well, the best way, you know, first of all, it's considering why you want to lose weight and what it's for. Um, you know, if it's something, like if you if you have to make weight, if you're a, if you're an athlete that has a weight to, to reach, to, to be able to compete, 
that's something that's not really done for health or for long-term wellness. That's to, that's a, that's a, a destination weight loss. If somebody wants to lose, if somebody's going to lose weight for, to look a certain way, like maybe for a reunion or a wedding, again, that's what we call a destination weight loss. So, but long-term sustainable weight loss, really it, the best weight for, for anybody is the weight that you are able to, the lowest weight that you can maintain while you're enjoying the life that you live. So if you're suffering through something which is really not comfortable, like an athlete will do, to make weight, once once you've reached that destination, you know, things reverse and it, it, it's going to come back. So the best way to do it is to find out the most comfortable amount and type of exercise that you can actually enjoy doing long term. And the same thing goes for the way that you're, in terms of nutrition and diet, what you can enjoy and sustain and manage for the long, for the, for the long run. That's the best way to do it. I mean, it sounds kind of <laughs> doesn't sound like I'm on the biggest loser, which I, I get. <laughs> uh, so the the best way is is the best way is to focus on. It's going to sound like such a boring answer. It's to focus to focus on whole, unprocessed um, foods that make them from scratch as much as often as possible. And then over time, when when you do have a, a destination weight, something that you want to you know achieve a, a change in your body for, then it then there are things like you know managing carbohydrates maybe reducing them but not i'm not i'm not a long-term for me unless you love doing it i don't think it's gonna work for long term hmm. so. and, and you mentioned too like the word enjoy and, yeah. and long term yeah. if you're not getting joy out of what you're doing you're not gonna do it long term well anybody can suffer through anything i mean <laughs> listen when i was when i was a football player and we had to make weight believe me you know you suffer to make weight and then yeah. once you've done that you know you go back you're not gonna keep suffering we're humans don't want to do that. I mean, it's it's just not something that we're able to do long term. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I interviewed Dr. Yanni Friedhof, who wrote the book called The Diet Fix. Um, phenomenal book and really changed my really, really was was uh, very, very significant in the way that I thought about about all this stuff. But he actually is the one that came up with that idea of um, your, your best weight is the weight that you can maintain uh, for the longest period of time living the life that you love to live because as soon as you suffer through something when it's the suffering has become too much you return and he actually uh, coined a phrase which i thought was phenomenal called the um similar to post-traumatic stress disorder he calls it post-traumatic diet disorder hmm. meaning that people who who suffer through these you know if you hate cutting carbs and you do it because you think i'm gonna lose weight you know ultimately you come back with, with the weight gain and with the return to the way you're eating before, there's some shame, there's some guilt, like like trauma, real trauma. So yeah. then somebody like that will try a different approach, suffer through it, you know, get tired of it, comes back, and then now you've got the second. So it's it's this long-term, you know, people used to talk about yo-yo dieting, but it's, it's, it's really a traumatic, <laughs> um, psychologically uh, damaging way to go about life. It's, vicious, it's so a vicious the, the cycle. Weight, for you is the weight that you can manage while living the life you enjoy. Yeah, it's a great it's a great way to yeah. put it. Ernie, we'll have to leave it there. Our listeners yeah. can get more information online, erniesfitnessworld.com, a great place to uh, start to get into shape. Ernie, thanks for the time this morning. You're welcome, Rick. You too. That's Ernie Schraemeyer, certified personal trainer at Ernie Schraemeyer Fitness, former Ticats fullback. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. For the first time in more than 50 years... A U.S. spacecraft has landed on the moon. Dave was just talking about it during the news. Uh, the Odysseus private lander from Intuitive Machines touched down on the lunar surface yesterday. And, and that's not all. NASA 
is also looking for some volunteers to participate in a simulated Mars mission to help inform the space agency on its, who knows, one day human exploration of the Red Planet. Here to talk about it is Dr. Elena Hyde, the director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory at York University. Dr. Hyde, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Great to be here. Let's start with the moon. What is the significance of America's first lunar landing in half a century? Well, it's quite interesting because this uh, landing is a little bit different than uh, what we saw before in the the U.S. space race because this is a private uh, lander. It's a private program. As you mentioned, it is a a private company, Intuitive Machines, um, and they have a class of lunar landers that they have designed. And so it's it's a uh, it's a little bit of um, I suppose a continuation of what we've been seeing with the privatization of sort of space exploration and lunar exploration. There have been a, quite a few missions recently, some successful, some not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but there is a lot of interest in going back to the moon by many different people, including uh, private companies. So this successful mission. Um, it is kind of showing a little bit of proof of concept after some of the sort of spectacular failures we've had by by some other companies recently. Um, but it's great to see that they are actually able to do a successful landing with this kind of uh, different model. So this lander is at the south pole of the moon. Is, is there a reason why there? Like, what's going on there? Yes. Uh, the lunar surface has has been thought of as kind of a dead rock for a very long time, but there's been an idea that there might be uh, water, water ice, especially hidden in some of the craters that never see sunlight. And around the south pole of the moon, uh, they actually have found some evidence for uh, water ice. And if you have water on the moon, it makes all kinds of things much uh, more feasible. Because one of the most difficult things in space is getting things into space. Um, spacecrafts, astronauts, and of course materials like like water, for example. Um, so what kind of water there is, what it could be used for, who's allowed to use it, all of those things are very interesting to a lot of folks. And so uh, that's why we've seen so many different um, programs target the uh, um, the South Pole, especially. And that's not just this recent Odysseus mission, but also we saw just a little bit ago, we saw this slim uh, lander, the smart lander for investigating the moon from the Japanese uh, Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA, um, which, which did successfully land as well. So Interesting times. The uh, the moon race is back on, I guess. Dr. Elena Hyde is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Hyde is the director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Let's switch gears and talk about Mars, because NASA is looking for some volunteers, four volunteers, in fact, to live and work inside a 1,700-square-foot 3D-printed habitat based at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Um, to to simulate a a mission to the Mars surface. This sounds kind of cool. Yeah, it is. And actually, Mars exploration has been one of my my favorite topics for ages now. And uh, there have been simulated habitats around for ages. And actually, it's great that you're going from uh, from the moon to Mars because that actually is a lot of people's plan. <laughs> 
um, especially in uh, in NASA and uh, other space agencies. The idea is some of the technology we use on the moon will be helpful in, in getting to Mars, which is an incredibly hostile environment, all things considered. So one of the things you have to think about if you're going to go an extra um, 0.5 AU or <laughs> um, out to that uh, small little half-size um, planet of Mars is it, it's colder, there's no atmosphere, uh, to speak of, well, a very, very thin atmosphere and um, very hostile to what we know of human life. So you need these kind of um, uh, completely contained environments to survive there. And the testing on these has been around for a long time. You've probably heard of uh, biodomes. Uh, Montreal has one even. And uh, the idea is you send these astronauts or contestants or whatever you want to call them uh, into controlled habitats. And they then get to experience a Mars mission in controlled conditions that lets you test all kinds of things. Do you think it's going to happen before 2100? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the technology is there. We could, we, we have the ability to go to Mars. The question is, uh, how are you going to safely send humans there so that um, are, you know, is the mission going to be to send humans to establish a permanent base on Mars, or are we trying to send them there and bring them back all in one mission? Um, it depends on what they're trying to do with it, and of course, who's going to fund it. Um, but we do actually have the technology with rocketry now to get to Mars. The question is, of course, um, how do you how do you make sure that you're going to survive okay once you get there as um, somewhat squishy humans um, out in a very, very much harsher Martian environment. It is uh, one of the questions that I'm sure will be asked again and again and again. It is uh, very intriguing to think about. Dr. Hyde, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. And uh, just a little call out to your listeners, the, the full moon is out. So if you do want to go and see it, um, it will be a full moon tomorrow. Excellent. That is always a spectacle in the sky. Dr. Hyde, thanks. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Elena Hyde is the director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory at York University. By the way, if you want to volunteer for this NASA, NASA simulation, the deadline is April the 2nd. You can go online to chappie.nasa.gov, and Chappie is C-H-A-P-E-A, C-H-A-P-E-A dot NASA dot gov. Tight squeeze, though, 1,700 square feet, four people in there. That's about the size of, a, I don't know, a Hamilton Mountain bungalow. But it's a 3D printed habitat. That is just absolutely, dare I say it, out of this world. Pretty cool. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. 911.